we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome, dear listener. I was just about to make a big announcement how, indeed, you are listening to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove with the return of Scott the Velvet Glove. And then he just disappeared. He was there talking to us, sitting in the background, and then all of a sudden he's disappeared. So Joe, the tech guy, will now madly scramble and try and find out what happened to Scott. He's disappeared into the ether. And um, I'll just babble on with my normal introduction. So I'm Trevor, a.k.a. The Iron Fist, soon to be joined, hopefully, by Scott, the Velvet Glove, Joe, the tech guy. And we're going to talk about news and politics and sex and religion if you're in the chat room, say hello. We'll try and incorporate your comments. Joe, I'm going to leave it to you with you to try and communicate with Scott and try and get him on board. And um, hello in the chat room to Joel, Danny, John, and Tom the Warehouse guy. Good on you. And we're going to do our best to try and get Scott going. So, right, topics to talk about will be uh, Melbourne Cup. Is it important to you? Uh, the budget. A little bit about private schools, Elon Musk, infiltrate impact and impel where basically church groups have been encouraging their uh, flock to sign up to the Liberal Party, more evidence of that, and, um, oh, some China bashing and other stuff. So we'll see where we end up and now I'm really thrown because I had all these ideas in my head about Scott and uh, they've completely flown the coop now. So. We'll see where we go. Okay. Did you enjoy the Melbourne Cup today, dear listener? I'll tell you how you fit in with normal Australian society. So how would you describe your level of interest in the Melbourne Cup? If you think your level of interest was high, then that would mean um, only 15% of Australians would think that way. If you had moderate interest, 31% felt that way. Low interest in the Melbourne Cup, 24%. And no interest at all, 28%. And I'd probably reached that level myself of 28%. Horse racing is a funny thing. I grew up in Clayfield, which is a suburb next to Hendra, and that's where all of the um, horse racing stables were. And so different horse racing families were at the school I went to, Our Lady Help of Christians, Catholic school at Hendra. And it was a bit of a horsey community. And I had a mate, uh, Joe, different Joe, Italian guy, and he was only 12, but he looked old enough to place bets with bookies. So we would actually go to the racetrack and, uh, and place bets with our pocket money. And at that point, I was really into horse racing and you'd get the paper and the first thing you'd look at would be the horses. But um, if you're not into horse racing, then you just don't look at it at all. Yeah, I've reached the point where I don't look at all. And the reason for that, dear listener, as well, is I was following this horse called Arwan and I really knew this horse very well. And it was entered in the Melbourne Cup and I thought it had no chance. And the goddamn thing won the Melbourne Cup, even though it was kind of one of my favourite horses. And I thought at that point, well, you know what? I know nothing about this game. I'll just give it up. So uh, Arwan ended up doing the uh, – they trot Arwan out all the time for the uh, the parade. And it was one of the longest living horses in Melbourne Cup history, I think. Always in that Melbourne Cup parade. Haunted me for at least 20 years reminding me how I had no faith in Arwan. So, so anyway, that was uh, my interest in the Melbourne Cup. And interesting, if you break it down by uh, age group, I would have thought that older age groups would be more interested. But in fact, according to this poll, not the case. And the other one was if you thought that people who voted for the uh, coalition in the previous election were more likely to be interested in the Melbourne Cup, you would be correct as well. So conservative voters, more interested in the Melbourne Cup. Right. Joe, did you follow the uh, controversy with the Bureau of Meteorology at all? I I did see something about them paying huge amounts of money for a consultant to, to say, we're going to change you from the Bureau to the bomb or no, the other way around? The other way around. 
Everybody okay. knows it as the bomb. Mm-hmm. Type in bomb, B-O-M, into yep. Google and it'll suggest bomb radar and mm-hmm. everybody knows it, everybody uses it and somebody had the bright idea that, no, we needed to be rebranded and paid an enormous amount of money and told people they want to be known as the Bureau and, uh, of course, everybody went, what, what are you doing? That's crazy. The bomb is a great name. Anyway, it's the bomb. Yeah. The bomb is the bomb. Mm-hmm. Adam Law, the guy from uh, one of those cooking shows, he's quite good on Twitter. He said, are government consultants ever like, hey, actually, your brand is pretty good. Let's just keep the logo on letterhead as it is. Do any consultants ever actually say that? Let's just leave it. You're fine. Well, is this the whole you only remember the red traffic lights effect? So you Mm -hmm. only know of the consultants that say, oh, you need to change your name because those are the ones we hear about? Maybe. You're true. You'd need to do a freedom of information or RTI or yeah. whatever it is request. Yeah. If you're a consultant out there and you've ever said to a client, actually, everything's fine, nothing for me to do, see you later, I let us know. the big scandal was around their morale and because apparently they've lost a whole load of forecasters because the forecasters are jack of um, – being told they can't talk about climate change. Right, yes. Yeah, it sounds like a bad culture. Sunday Papers had some stuff. Rick Moore mm-hmm. has been doing some things. Sounds like a, a bad culture in bomb. Because so. the CEO had been put in by a certain political party that don't believe in climate change. Mm. Roman in the chat room says, in government, consultants deliver what they are told to. <laughs> there we go. I, I was going to say, I've done some consultancy gigs, which was literally right, you tell us what we want or what you want and I'll write the report saying <laughs> because it was we've told them this already but they won't listen to us. We have to get a consultant's report to justify right. us doing what we want to do. Yeah. You put it in a spreadsheet then, Joe? It wasn't a spreadsheet. It was a written okay. report. Okay. With a whole I bunch of recommendations that the, the, the IT team had already said, we need to do this, we need to do that. Yeah. But the boss That's won't because- give us funding. Yeah. So we also had the budget since we last spoke. Uh, new Labor government came out with the budget. And, of course, there's these tax cuts, Joe, for mm. middle and high income earners, which people have been agitating. I mean, this is crazy. I, I don't know that 180K is middle. Ex- I said middle and high. <laughs> yes. no, but even 180, is that middle? Uh, I would have thought that's high. I thought it was high. I think yeah. it's definitely above the median. The median's yeah. 90? Uh, no, the median is around 55, okay. 60. The average is somewhere around 70, I think. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, if you lined up all Australians, the median's somewhere around 55. Anyway, budget. So, well, it's just insane that Scott Morrison, long gone, Passes a law and for tax cuts that are going to occur in four years' years time or something. It's just a ludicrous situation where we've got past governments, laws are not even implemented but are scheduled to come in place and we have to talk about it. But Labor didn't say that they, well, they didn't do anything to cancel those. So at the moment they... They went to the election saying that they wouldn't, didn't they? Yes, indeed. They didn't want to have a fight over that. They didn't want mm-hmm. Morrison to use it as a wedge because they were too gutless to to actually have a fight on any issue at all. And now they're lumped with it. But I think what they're doing is they're just waiting for things to get really bad and then they'll say, oh, things are really bad, can't do it, sorry. I think they're just playing that sort of clever game. So... Reading between the lines, I think they would be determined to get rid of them and are just waiting for things to get worse so they feel they can mount a better excuse. We'll see. I just wish they'd have some balls and actually just say, you know what, it's a really bad idea. Mm -hmm. We're just not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, they they claimed it was for stability or it would Mm. because people had planned for these cuts, this would screw up people's lives. Yes, they've they've factored in their school fee, their private school fees, and their mm-hmm. overseas holiday, and then yep. you can't, based on the anticipated 
tax cuts. Tax cuts. It'd be unfair. Which wouldn't kick in unless you were earning more than 180k or whatever it was. Yeah, well, it, well, it kicks in, but significantly more money for those levels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was um, the budget. I actually couldn't get too interested in it, Joe, because I just figure it's a long time till the next election. Whatever's really happened in this one, nobody cares. Nobody's paying any attention. It'll be long forgotten. And so I really couldn't. Well, unfortunately, because I'm in Mr. Potato's electorate, mm. I get all of his political advertising in my Facebook feed. Crying on sins. about how wonderful he is and how he's going to hold Labor to account. Mm. Oh, well, I'm sorry for you, Joe. <laughs> but let's talk about budgets, just an overview of budgets. And I've got a clip from, uh, I came across one from Yanis Fudifakis, who you will know is one of my favourites. So let me just find this one from Yanis. And um, this is how advice about budgets. I think this was in the UK, but it's still applicable. I'm not sure where he was when he was doing this, but we'll see what. Here we go. You, sir, and then I come to you in the white shirt there. Okay, I think um, politicians spend so much time arguing amongst themselves about the problem. Economics is really simple. I've got £10 in my pocket. If I go out and buy three pints of beer in Cambridge, I'm probably borrowing money. <laughs> if I carry on doing that, then I'm going to run out of money and I'm going to go bust. It's not difficult, guys. Just sit down. Work out what the country needs to do and work collectively together. Because the country together. does not operate as your budget does. We have because a budget But why not? Why not? <laughs> why, why, in, why in not? the country, total expenditure equals total income. In your life, you, you have a, a wonderful in, independence between your expenses and your income. So I, when you no, cut down I, on your expenses, your income doesn't cut. I, it's I not dis- cut. But for the country as a whole, if the country as a whole goes into... Uh, a, a major savings spree, then its total income is going I, to come down. I, I, so your personal life is I, not a I, good I, model on which to base. <laughs> and that, dear listener, is why I love Giannis Fourfakis. Because how often do you see in a panel discussion a stupid question asked? Shut and- down. And just gets absolutely shot down. You're a dickhead, mate. You're completely wrong. Uh, the government budget is not like your household budget. And uh, just shut up. Yeah, <laughs> in, I mean, in I, a very I th- nice way. I, I think a lot of people don't understand you spend your way out of a crisis yes. because it seems counterintuitive. Yes, but a government is not a, high, a household budget. No, it's, it's, it's exactly what he's saying was exactly right, that mm-hmm. as a personal person, your income and your expenses are two totally separate things. They don't interplay. And also, you as a household don't get to print money. You, no. Governments do. So entirely different. And um, I just love Giannis for that sort of straight talking. Good on him. So that was the budget. That was Giannis on budgets. And, look, I think we've lost Scott. It just sounds like it sounds like he's. I don't know. He said he was going to try a speed test and get back to me, but he thought uh, he was probably right because because he's running on four G, uh, and okay. if if all the kids are watching Netflix on four G around his area, okay, um, he will be out of luck. Okay, well, we tried, dear listener. We'll we'll definitely try and get uh, Scott back next week or something. Elon Musk has bought Twitter. Yes. Yeah. And, um, gee, my screen is going blank all of a sudden. Um, oh, we can still see you. Uh, interestingly, the trending topic in Canada was Mastodon, which is an right. open source version of Twitter. Yes. Yep. So people are looking for alternatives. Do you ever mm-hmm. get onto Twitter much? Do you look around there much? Um, yeah. I mean, I use it again more as a news feed than yeah. anything else. But um, I, I have a friend who pastes a lot of uh, Twitter links into my Discord feed, so I end up yeah. at least looking at that. So I think he's made a boo-boo on this one, Elon Musk, because essentially he just sort of was a bit of a big mouth and sort of committed to buying and then tried to pull out and they basically threatened him with legal action and said, well, 
you've gone this far, you have to go all the way through with it. And some people think that Elon Musk is somehow going to uh, resurrect Twitter as to positive place for freedom of speech for people who want to say whatever they like and that somehow Elon Musk is a champion of free speech. And uh, the way it's going to play out is that Twitter doesn't make any money and it needs advertisers in order to make money and advertisers need a safe place for their advertisements. And if it's just a free-for-all Wild West on Twitter, they won't be advertising, he won't get the advertising money and he'll have no chance of making a dollar out of Twitter. So it could be a really, really expensive mistake by Elon Musk. We'll see how it pans out. Well, they've said that um, they've not changed any of their rules so far. Mm. Mm. However, apparently the number of neo-Nazi tweets have gone up 400%. Yes. Mm. Sort of left-wing female politicians are complaining that they're suddenly bombarded with a lot of really nasty stuff from trolls and things that perhaps wasn't going on before. So uh, I think they feel emboldened and they think that, uh, that Elon will protect them. I don't think he will because he can't afford to. No, exactly. So we'll see what happens. <clears throat> mm. Although there's questions as to whether Trump will be allowed back on. Mm. We'll see how that all pans out. Just uh, as I was reading stuff about that, I saw this thing about Tesla this is from Mint Press News, saying that Tesla benefits greatly from complex international rules around electric vehicle production. So apparently Tesla is really overvalued according to the normal rules of valuing companies, the sort of price-earning ratios and things like that. What this article said was that governments around the world have introduced a system of credits for green vehicles where a certain percentage of each manufacturer's output must be zero-emission vehicles. And Tesla, of course, are 100% zero-emission. So they've got spare credits that they don't need that they can therefore sell to other companies who struggle to meet that sort of percentage requirement of zero-emission vehicles. So... They can sell their credits to other manufacturers who can't meet the quota. And these credits are worth their weight in gold. So Tesla earns billions every year. Between 2019 and 2021 alone, Stellantis, which owns the Chrysler, Fiat, Citroen and Peugeot brands, forked out nearly $2.5 billion to acquire Tesla's credits. This bizarre and self-defeating system goes some way to explaining. So Tesla, Tesla is worth more by market capitalisation than Toyota, Volkswagen, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, GM, Ford, Honda, Hyundai, Kia and Volvo put together. Quite incredible, despite it not being in the top 15 car manufacturers in terms of the number of units sold. That's extraordinary, isn't it, Joe? that they sell so few cars, yet the, con the value of Tesla is all of those companies combined. Extraordinary. Maybe because their product isn't the cars, it's the tax credits. Yeah. I don't know exactly what's going on there, but it's quite extraordinary. Um, it's, isn't it like car car companies that make absolutely bugger all on the hire? Um, it's the the way they devalue the vehicles and then sell them on. Okay. And that's where they make their profits. Right. Okay. Some so hiring like the vehicle that. is something they do while they depreciate the, the cost mm. of the vehicle over two years and then mm. sell it on to make a profit. I don't know how mm. it works, but I have heard from people who, do, who were working in that industry. That's how it made money. Right. Next item on the agenda, the, the United Kingdom cabinet. New one, freshly minted. Some of the statistics were, I, saw, I thought was interesting. 61% of the cabinet were educated at fee-paying schools. So they are nine times more likely to have gone to an independent school than the general population, which is basically, in the general population, only 7% of British people go to a fee-paying school. Mm-hmm. 
So to me, the interesting statistic wasn't that 61% of the Cabinet went to fee-paying schools. It was that only 7% of Brits go to a fee-paying school. Compared to what is it, 40% here? Australia, 30% of primary school kids and 40% of secondary school children attend a private or independent school. So that's what I try and say to people when I harangue them at dinner party conversations is we are out of whack with the rest of the world in terms of the percentage of people who go to private schools. Yeah, yeah, it's very unusual. This is our, um, it's our gun control issue. You know, American, we look at America Mm -hmm. and we say, you guys are crazy, this gun control stuff, what are you doing? People look at us and go, it's private school stuff, What, what are you doing? You're nuts, nobody else does this. Yeah, I mean, it's at least a little healthier than mm. guns. Guns. Is it, is it Joe? <laughs> do, you, do you attend a private school? Do you, oh, a fee-paying school? I went to a public school. Right, okay. So, yes, it so, was fee-paying. Yes, because it's in the reverse over there. It's yeah. This, um, yeah, it's very awkward the way it's done. But, yeah. but mine yeah. was state-owned. Yeah. Um, but was fee-paying, and the the decider as to whether it's a public school or not is whether the headmaster is part of the headmaster's conference. There's, there's basically a, an elite club, and if your school's headmaster or headmistress is a member of that, then the school is considered to be a public school. Ah, Okay. In the chat room, Tom the Warehouse guy says, the percentage of private schools is high here, but you are forgetting the grammar schools in England too. So what does that mean? Grammar schools, so comprehensive are the standard state schools, but grammar schools are still owned and run by the state. They don't charge fees. Yep. Um, historically, they were called grammar schools because they taught Latin and Greek. Um, and they now concentrate more on academic, and they get to select. So there's an exam called the 11 plus, and right. if you have a suitable grade at the 11 plus, then you get selected into a grammar school. And How so old are that you is then? what what sort of age is that? Um, that's the beginning secondary school. Right. Yep. Um, so effectively, you go into a secondary school that is more academic, hmm. whereas the comprehensives are more vocational. Yep. So they'll do less specialist subjects in terms of maths and languages. Yeah. And they'll do independent biology, physics, and chemistry, whereas a comprehensive will have a all-in-one science curricula. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I think Germany has a system where they really early on identify you're going to be working in a factory or you're going to be a sort of a, a tradie or something like that mm-hmm. and you're funneled off into that sort of school and they do it quite early on from memory, talking to some German people. So hmm. so if you get into a grammar school, then you are seen as being likely to be free. You're more likely to go to university. Yeah. yeah, university, yep. But that still is a free system. It is, yeah. Right, yep, okay. Tom and that's guy. in England, whereas in Scotland and Wales, they ha- they don't have grammar schools, I think. And James in the chat room says, well, that's because Australia's education system is terrible. Well, do you mean the state education, government-run system? That, that would be because it's self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Well, it's not true. So if you account for socioeconomic status, then there is basically if you take into account that people from well-to-do families will statistically perform better than people from not so well-to-do families, then there is no advantage in going to a private school. So you can look at the statistics and if you are well-to-do, the chances of you ending up in university are no different um, statistically whether you're in the uh, private system or the state system but that's not to say there are not differences between schools. There are some good private schools and bad private schools, good public schools and bad public schools, but there's no actual across-the-board sort of um, benefit of attending a private school. And that was all done through 
oh, I interviewed a guy in a uh, James, you've listened to every episode. So way back early days in the episode 50 or 60, a guy, Gillespie, wrote a book on this. So talk to him about that. And uh, the other thing a- is when you start, people start going out of the public system, which means that mm-hmm. there's less money going into the public system and the pools are cherry reaping the high achievers, leaving the low achievers and the dysfunctional in the public system and so th- there is a higher concentration then in the public system so it gets a reputation for being bad and then more people want to go into the private system yes people will look at the courier mail will say oh 50 year 12 students from girls grammar ended up with op1s or something like that mm. but um statistically and- if those kids had gone to the gap high or other good uh a range of other state schools, they would have had the same result. And also, I, I do know that the schools fudge things like NAPLAN. And if you yes. are not succeeding, you are encouraged not to take NAPLAN. Indeed, yes. There was quite a rorting system. I think it was one of the girls' schools on top of the hill here, uh, Stuart Home, I think, were basically uh, any of the lesser performing students were encouraged to... Mm-hmm to uh, avoid the system. So in the chat room, Alison says, uh, David Gillespie's book is called Good Schools and it's excellent. And Alison says, postcode is the biggest determiner of how students perform in Australian schools of whatever type. So, yeah, I'm a big proponent for the value of state schools. Yes, there are some bad ones, but there's some good ones and it's the same as the private system. Keep your money and just send your kids to a good public school my two boys, yeah, I, for example, I OP thought ones, no problem. The well, OPs are gone. Yes, but I thought it was actually parental involvement is the biggest mm. determiner. Mm. How involved parents are in their children's education, you know, how much time is set aside for they do their homework, and how much assistance they get with their homework. Mm. Um, it really predicts how well they'll do. Mm, haven't heard that. I've just heard socioeconomic. I haven't heard that. So, don't know. I mean, yeah, socioeconomic means that there's a parent around usually to help with the homework and to make yeah. sure that the things are getting done. Mm, don't know about that, Joe. I have to get back to you about that one. Not prepared to accept that, but we'll see. That um, was from Freakonomics. Okay. You know the yeah. book Freakonomics? Yeah, 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 yep, yep. Yeah, could be intertwined in some way. So, yeah, the statistic for me wasn't so much that 61% of the UK cabinet was educated at fee-paying schools. It was just the general population, it's only 7% mm-hmm. compared to Australia where it's 40%. And so I was Googling around trying to find out about the current Australian cabinet and I couldn't find anything current. But I did find an article from Crikey back from 2013. This was in the days of Tony Abbott as our Prime Minister. When Tony Abbott was Prime Minister, his cabinet, 82% of uh, the cabinet went to private schools, 82%. And they were looking at the Labor opposition at the time, which was Bill Shorten's uh, shadow front bench, and 53% of them went to private schools, although some of them were not the Ivy League schools. For example, uh, Albanese was going to a Catholic school where the annual fee was under $2,000, so a very, very cheap Catholic school. Really hard to compare that with the likes of Xavier College and Geelong Grammar where, you know, back in 19... um, Oh, 2013, they were fees of above $20,000. So, so yeah, back then, Tony Abbott's cabinet, 82% private school. Uh, Labor opposition, 53% private school. People like Shorten went to Xavier College, annual fees at the time, 23000 Albanese, 2000 The Attorney General, Shadow Attorney General, who is the current Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, Scotch College, also... The deputy now, the defence minister, Richard Miles, Geelong Grammar, so another expensive one. Penny Wong went to Scotch College, 
expensive, 23000 at that time. Meanwhile, Tanya Plibersek went to Janali Girls High. Look, I think these things have an effect on people. It's good to see Jason Clare, Education Minister, went to Canley Vale High School. That's encouraging. Anyway, that's in the show notes. There's an article, old article from Crikey about, uh, about our own politicians at that time. Right. What was um, interesting was all the Catholic schools, although they were fee-paying, it was a nominal fee. Yes. So, like, I went to St James's High School in the Valley, which was basically the poorest, cheapest private school you could go to. Yeah. I think I've told this before, but we were so poor, we did high jump practice on a traffic island. Mm-hmm. That's another story. <laughs> Cy Gladman, writing in Rationale, the magazine for the Rationalist Society, was uh, writing about a pamphlet that had been handed out by church groups in Victoria to their congregation. It was a one-page document encouraging them to join up as members of the Liberal Party. And the document had the uh, the title, which was Infiltrate, Impact and Impel, and it was complete with a flowchart showing how when you sign up as a member of the Liberal Party uh, after a certain number of months, after one and a half months as a member, you can vote at branch meetings for state council delegates and state assembly delegates, or you can nominate as a delegate. And after two years of continuous membership, the member can pre-select quote, good godly candidates, end quote. Nothing wrong with that. No. What could possibly go wrong? And uh, in a little quote nearby on this pamphlet, the importance of this step is made clear where it says, quote, this is where we impact the most for good, only pre-selecting candidates. They've got a picture of that document was handed to them, uh, the rationalists, and it's also floated around with other journalists. Oh, size article talks about some of the things we've spoken about in the past, about uh, Renee Heath, Pentecostal church member, uh, her father's active in the church. We've spoken about him before. And it's just a general article confirming what we've been rabbiting on about for years, the concerted, specific directed approach to sign people up so you can put in uh, candidates who are Christians. Mm. Wasn't it the Mormons in Victoria and the Evangelicals in WA? Yes, huge numbers of Mormons in Victoria were uh, in official positions in the Liberal Party. Mm. Mm -hmm. And really uh, just there's different quotes in there where they're just saying to these people, praying is is not good enough. I urge you to pray. Prayer is important, but prayer is not going to change the views of government. Cold, hard numbers and votes is what changes political opinion. So that's the sort of stuff that's being told to people and they're being encouraged to sign up. No surprise there. Interesting, Joe, like the age in Victoria is, I mean, there's an election not far off and Mm -hmm. uh, just completely silent about this entire topic. So they're not mentioning this. Uh, yeah, it's um, Fairfax, right. I think, or is it Murdoch? It's it's just as bad. So yeah. very anti-Dan. Um, so, yeah, they're not mentioning it at all. Anthony Green, the ABC election sort of specialist guy, also had a tweet that he said, two more political parties registered today. Here's the name of one of them, Joe. They called themselves Angry Victorians Party. And there's another new party registered as well. And they're, they're called, wait for it, Restore Democracy Sack Dan Andrews Party. So there's 23 is, is parties sacking registered. politicians democracy? Yeah, well, according to the Restore Democracy Sack Dan Andrews Party, it is. So there'll be 23 parties registered with Family Matters Victoria still under consideration. So the upper house election is going to be wild in Victoria with all of those characters, the angry Victorians party and the restore democracy sacked Dan Andrews party. Oh, dear. Bronwyn says angry Victorians and restore democracy are two of the cooker slash nutter groups that used to protest outside Parliament House about vaccines. So Maybe they should have used their secret microwave weapons on them. (laughs) Yeah. 
You'll be able to spot them handing out the uh, leaflets. They'll be the ones with the foil hats, I think, um, on election day. So, all right. Oh, the other thing that happened. Look, you know, Bromman in Victoria, you've got your fair share of nutters down there these days. But Dan Andrews signing up Victoria as the sponsor for the Australian netball team was a masterstroke in just sticking it to his detractors. I have to say, look, you can argue about whether you know, state government should be involved in sponsoring sporting groups, but they do it all the time and spend a lot of money on the Grand Prix and all the rest of it. Like this is, I think the Grand Prix might be $65 million a year or something, something crazy like that. So $15 million is probably quite cheap. But I just, um, what a move. What a move. Yeah, the Grand Prix basically. brings money in. Yes. Government budgets, you've got to spend money to make money, haven't you, mm-hmm. as we said earlier? Yeah. I don't know if it works at state government level. It might be just yeah. federal. Anyway, his detractors on the uh, Sky News and all that would be just apoplectic with rage that he stepped in and taken that sponsorship. And so they can no, no longer... I, uh, I don't that? know if um, Gina operates in Victoria, but now he needs to tax the difference, doesn't he? Yes. So actually... I've got a clip here of uh, Gina Reinhardt. Let me just find this one for you, dear listener. You'll, you'll like this one, so um, bear with me one second. Uh, this is actually Gina Meinhardt, not Gina Reinhardt. So uh-huh. here we go. We'll play this. Yeah. Good evening. My name is Gina Meinhardt. My dear subjects, tonight I would like to explain to you the importance of mining for Australia's future. This is my understanding of how mining works. What's mine is mine. What's yours is also mine. What's in the mine is mine. And what's not in the mine is also mine. Or soon will be mine. That's my understanding of mining. I would say thank you before signing off, but that implies I owe you something. Good night. Is that Magda? I think it is. Looks does look like Magda, doesn't it? Yes. Funny. Yeah. Gina Meinhardt. Mm-hmm. Explaining exactly <laughs> what happened there. Good on you, Magda. You ever heard people singing Baby Shark? Oh yes. Do, 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 do. Uh, our, our friend Don really doesn't like it. Mm. So I, I play online Xbox with him, and we used to ambush him with Baby Shark from time to time whilst we were right. playing online. So we'd be playing a game, and one of us would start Baby Shark. Well, Joe Biden really mm. loves it, apparently. Uh, so I've got another clip here. Who doesn't? This one. Yeah, well, I don't actually like it myself, <laughs> but... Um, he was at an event where he was supposed to be starting the. Um, <laughs> Alice, <laughs> Alice was asking us not to sing it. <laughs> well, you might want to just plug your ears for a moment. Here's Joe Biden. It was supposed to be the national anthem, but he got a bit sidetracked. Ladies and gentlemen, and now our great national anthem. Baby shark, do 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 do. Baby shark, do 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 do. Baby shark. Mommy shark do 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 do. Mommy shark do 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 do. Mommy shark do 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 do. Mommy shark. There we go. Why did I play that? Because you can't believe what you see. It, it sort of you could see his lips moving in time with it, and at a cursory glance, you might think that that was actually real footage of him. And so that was posted on TikTok. It was accompanied by comments expressing disbelief, people saying, what in the world? And he's lost his mind. And another one stated, ladies and gentlemen, this is who's leading this country. How? Question mark, exclamation mark, question mark. So these things will fool some people. Idiots. (laughs) Yes. There was also the classic of Obama... Doing, sticking his middle finger up. There was something about Obama, which wasn't him, but was very famous. Right. So anything's possible 
one guy in his underpants in his mother's basement can just mm-hmm. get on some free software and create this stuff that looks very realistic and causes mischief. And there are people out there who will fall for it. So um, people are getting concerned about the deep fakes of porn where you have famous celebrities mm. being faked onto other actors' bodies. And there's just there's enough people out there who will believe mm-hmm. this stuff. So it is a dangerous sort of thing that's happening. Don't know what we can do about it. Become anyway, more sceptical. Yes, indeed. When you, when you see something, look at the sources, find out who produced it, and is it elsewhere? Are there other reputable sources who are also saying it? So there are some very good um, open source tools on the internet for checking validity of photographs mm-hmm. um, where you paste in a photograph and assuming it hasn't been compressed and altered since then, it'll show you hot spots on the, which are areas that it's likely to have been edited. Right. So whether that will happen for video in the future, so you can see that, you know, here is Biden at the news conference, but his mouth is obviously being doctored. Yes. And it checks things like, yeah, the levels of compression and whether the the underlying information is consistent across the whole image. Yeah. So the technology but, for catching this stuff will also then hopefully keep pace with the technology that creates it. So, yeah, there's definitely technology for photographs. Uh, mm. I think that since a video is just a series of photographs, one after the other, mm. um, that the technology will not be far behind mm. to be able to throw in something and go, are there suspect areas in this? Mm. This reminds me of that thing with um, uh, professional chess players. Where mm-hmm. I think the current guy, Magnus. Remote control was- butt plug? Well, so what? What? What is this remote control butt plug thing, Joe? So he won a tournament. I don't know if it was the the top guy. Some guy won a tournament that he wasn't expected to win, and people were going, "Well, he obviously cheated." And then mm. somebody on some forum on the internet went, "Oh, well, he obviously had a remote control butt plug, so that you know, one buzz for yes, two buzzes for no, or whatever." Mm-hmm. Uh, and as various people have said, even something like that makes so much noise that it would be obvious. Yes. And, you know, can't these people just have a lucky day? Yes. Well, anyway, um, lots of people play online, of course, mm-hmm. and it would be very easy to cheat where on a separate screen you have a, um, a computer chess yep. operating to assist you with making the moves. And the, the the people who run online chess stuff now have programs that can analyse the moves that people make and recognise them as being a computer-based move. So right. they have technology now that says, actually, what you've done is so close to what a computer would have done, uh, we can say categorically, you're just a cheat. I thought that was interesting. Technology, mm-hmm. yeah, catching up to do that. Now, Joe, did you see the scenes with the Chinese Communist Party was having a powwow and there was like a former Chinese leader, I don't even want to butcher the pronunciation of his name. but Hu uh, Jintao, isn't it? Yeah, Hu Jintao. That's yeah. Very well, good. that's how it was always pronounced on the news when he was in the news on a regular basis. Okay. So... He was there and there were scenes shown where it looked like he was being forcibly removed from the chamber in a way that suggested that he'd kind of been part of a purge and this was a, an open demonstration of the Communist Party uh, uh, showing how even a former Chinese leader can be just literally... Um, shuffled out of the room. There was, a, for example, uh, New York Times had an article with a heading or with the leading sort of paragraph was uh, the former Chinese leader was unexpectedly escorted out of the Communist Party Congress without explanation. He appeared to pause to speak to President Xi before leaving. 
And Hugh Rimmington, one of our journalists above that, retweeted it and put, how horribly sinister. So I'm going to play that footage, first of all, that was going around everywhere. So, so he's been grabbed by the arm, a couple of assistants. He looks like he doesn't want to leave. They've forcibly got him by the arm. Everyone else is sitting down and he's trying to sort of stay in his seat. And uh, these two assistants are there. Everyone else is sort of seated, kind of trying to ignore the situation. He continues to struggle and he's, he's led away. Oh, I'm not seeing the video, says James. That's odd. Hmm, anyone else not seeing the video? That'd be really odd if that's the case. Uh, I'm going to stop it now anyway, but it does look like he's being hauled away by people um, when he doesn't want to be. So Here are all the motor drives on the cameras. Yeah, so Alison couldn't see it either. Mm. Oh, what is going on there, Joe? That was like YouTube was and Facebook both. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to try, um, oh, Bronwyn says she hadn't seen any of the videos tonight. I'm going to try one more and see if this one comes up. Well, if you can't see it, I will describe it to you. But essentially, he looks very confused, this guy. He's actually led into the chamber and led to his seat by an assistant. And when the um, meeting comes to an end, uh, President Xi signals to the assistant to say, come and help this guy out. And it clearly looks like a case of a man with dementia. And rather than being uh, sort of a, an act of cruelty, um, it actually looks like a situation where they're really looking after the guy. They've had somebody come in to escort him and somebody to help lead him away when the thing is finished and you get the impression that he is actually struggling with some form of dementia. So really a case where, Joe, you don't even need an artificial software piece that um, puts um, maybe shark into the mouth of Joe Biden and artificially changes it. The same event but depending how people want to cut and paste and also depending how people just want to frame it, if you take the view that the Chinese are sinister and this guy being led away, oh, that's just the Chinese being sinister, you have that narrative, whereas if you frame it as, well, former leader's got dementia and there were people assisting him in and assisting him out and it was actually um, you know, quite a, a generous moment from them, you have an entirely different view depending on on the words you want to use and the snippets that you want to sort of exhibit. And there was a similar thing happened with the protesters at the Chinese embassy in London where there was a mad scuffle out the front and depending on what news source you read, one was suggesting that the Chinese embassy staff were trying to drag the protesters into the embassy grounds, presumably to deal with them at a later stage when clearly they were trying to push them out and keep them out. So, um, It's not the first time that video has been edited for a, a particular purpose. Indeed. It's a narrative that's not necessarily true. Indeed. So I guess that's the point of what I was trying to show there, and it's a shame that the video um, wasn't working. So, hmm, don't know why. There's something funny happening with Restream. Something funny happened last week and maybe it's carried over where I don't know why, but um, it's really been it's been remarkably stable all these years, so mm -hmm. we're just having a problem at the moment. So anyway, oh, well, that's ruined things because I had various other clips I was going to show you as well. I have to cancel the one about the CIA propaganda and I'll have to, oh, well, I'll just describe it then. We had the one with... Don TV says you're taking it out of context, Trevor. What do you mean I'm taking it out of context? Um, I've, <laughs> I've given both contexts. Anyway, did you see 
in Parliament, Joe, where Albanese was asked about some infrastructure near Yapoom. And he got I didn't, up and he was I did talking see about, the comments. Yeah. He got up and he started talking and he mentioned about some infrastructure in Yapan. And yes. your local member, our federal opposition leader, Peter Dutton, basically thought that Albanese had made a mistake and instead of saying Yapoon, had said Yepin by mistake. But Albanese very intentionally said Yepin because there is a Yepin floodplain. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was this interjection by Peter Dutton and... Albanese was entirely across his brief, like he knew this stuff really well. He's the former infrastructure minister, I think, in the Rudd government or something like that. Right. Like he knew it really, really well and he just jumped onto uh, Dutton and said, it is Yepin, it's a Yepin floodplain, it's a different place to Yapoon and, you know, you as a Queenslander basically know nothing about your own state and tore strips off him. It was beautiful. And the um, the member there in that Yapoon area, that Rockhampton mm -hmm. area, the uh, opposition member who had asked the question was even laughing at at how how well Albanese was was sort yeah. of tearing strips off him. And then, short time later, she leaves the chamber and then um, purports, you know, has a press conference surrounded by lots of her fellow female opposition members and says she was bullied and she deserves an apology from Albanese when clearly Albanese was directing his comments at Dutton. It was just the most disgraceful beat-up of nothing. And uh, I don't believe it. Never happened. Yes. It all happened. I would have shown you the videos, but uh, I've got through a lot quicker by just telling it to you. It was quite pathetic by, by this group. and. Um, you know, typically article in the um, Courier-Mail referred to all of that except failed to mention that, in fact, the member who was complaining, Michelle Laundry, Landry, had been laughing in the chamber at Peter Dutton's expense and it puts the whole thing into context when you see her laughing. So She was trying to save face, was she? Yeah, well, for him. So I think she'd got the word hey, you need to complain about this so we can somehow try and turn this disaster to our advantage. But in my view, didn't achieve it and it was quite pathetic. Bromman says, just to clarify, we can hear the soundtrack of videos but not see the picture. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking right. at the at the moment and it's yeah. bizarre. So, Yes, uh, Jack H says, can the links be added to the notes? Definitely worthwhile watching that. Yes, the links will be in the show notes. So that's the notes that the patrons get. PDF document, normally about 25 or 30 pages long each episode. So a good reason to become a patron. What else have I got here? Joe, gas prices have skyrocketed. What do you think has happened to Australian government revenue from gas prices? Uh, not as good not as the Norwegians. Correct. Yeah. Let me see if I can bring up this. I wonder if, you, I wonder if these PowerPoints are going to actually show. Two charts. Uh, one showing the industry revenue. That's the orange one on top. Spiking incredibly high. The blue line at the bottom showing the revenue. In Australia's case, that blue line is a flat line. And in the Norwegian case, government revenue goes up and down in line with the industry revenue. As industry makes more money, it takes it. So not seeing the chart either. Okay, I will abandon the chart. But essentially, Norway is getting lots of money as the oil, as the gas prices increase from royalties and we're getting bugger all and... At some point, some government has got to take this on. Joe, it's a vote winner. Nobody nobody wants these foreign multinationals to get away with this. They just you say it's a vote winner, but do you I, not remember the MMRT? Wow. Was that a, was that a reason for losing votes? 
ultimately, did that cause Kevin Rudd to lose votes? Maybe uh, if you wasn't it, for the, that's what caused the coup, wasn't it? Oh, it was just that they hated him for other reasons, I think. That... But I thought the, the whole um, Minerals Council were advertising against mm. um, Kevin and the MMRT, and that's what mm. was certainly the excuse for the coup. Mm. It could have been. It could have been. But just grow some balls and just take it on. I think if you can communicate something, you should be able to communicate that this is a good policy and worth doing. I just don't understand why they don't give it a go. So anyway, pretty clear difference between Australia and Norway in terms of revenue. And oh, I had another one, just one final article to talk about. This is going to be a slightly shorter episode because I've been thrown off by these distractions. But essentially... This was a report from Boston Consulting Group and I was having a discussion with a friend today about energy prices and he was trying to say that renewable energies were the reason why prices Prices are spiked. Yes. And I said, no, it's because gas prices went up and that was the reason for the spike in the wholesale price. And this is an article from Boston Consulting where they said that essentially, uh, like a lot of other countries in the 90s, we opened up our electricity market to competition and we had the Australian National Energy Market was created. And it works as follows. Generation plants bid the minimum price at which they are willing to generate electricity. They do this separately for every five-minute period, and in theory, these bids are based on their fuel costs. So plants are dispatched in a merit order with those with the lowest bids dispatched first, followed by those with higher bids until there is sufficient generation to meet demand. So what price are you going to provide it for? We'll take all the cheapest ones first, and as we need more power, we get to the more and more expensive quotes. Um, But the price that's paid at any given time is the highest bid. So everybody gets paid the highest bid. Mm-hmm. So some of those plants that were able to, say, uh, solar power, for example, it generates it quite cheaply and might have been happy to sell it at $40, uh, will be paid at 120 or 250 or 360 if that was the final bid by, for example, a gas reliant plant that provided the last 1% of energy that we needed Mm -hmm. for that particular five minutes. So this is not an unusual situation. This is what's happening around the world as well. Similar setup. We've spoken about it before, but I just, I want to repeat myself. And um, so now there's a terminology here called the short run marginal cost, SRMC. As well as the short-run marginal cost, other factors impact the bidding strategies of the generators. They work out you know, what price they're going to bid at based on a number of things, including how much energy they've got and how easily they can turn it on and off. Typically, gas-fired mid-merit generators, which can adjust their output to match demand throughout the day, so gas easily able to mm-hmm. go up and down. Ramp up and down, yeah. Mm-hmm. Typically, they set the wholesale spot price most of the time because they have that flexibility and they come in at the last point after the coal and the renewables have have bid. The gas guys come in with a high price and uh, that's what everybody gets paid. And so it's that last price that sets – they're the price setters. And in this article it says we call them this – not just because they set the price directly when they're the marginal generator, you know, the last mm-hmm. bid, but also because they set the price indirectly via the bidding strategies of other generators that use the bid of price setters as a reference price. So based on past bids and all the rest of it, uh, the renewables and the coal guys and other players set a bid 
the strategy is also reliant on what the gas guys are doing. So that's what they said in this report. Let me just go on to the... Interestingly, I saw a presentation by a large national company, and it's not just generators. They are big enough because they're a large national company to load shed. So when the prices get high enough, they will take load off the grid and they get paid to take that load off the grid. Uh, like an aluminium smelter. Yeah. Y- yes. So, so paid for not using electricity. Basically, they'll get paid for the electricity they're not using. So at yes. times it's cheaper for them to run on their own generators. Right. So they've got remote control infrastructure that they can go turn off the mains input, switch onto generator power, and they get paid whatever the market price is. Let's burn some diesel Mm -hmm. and do it that way. Yep. So let me just read this part here. The consequence can be seen in Australia. While gas-fired generators only contribute 12% of power generation, uh, this is in the seven years between 2014 and 2021, so a study they did, seven-year period, Gas-fired generators contributed 12% of the power generation. They impacted the electricity price directly or indirectly for nearly 75% of the total power generation. So their influence is way out of proportion to their actual contribution. It's the same in the European Union. Gas there represents less than 20% of total generation but sets the price for two-thirds of the time similar thing in the United States. And so basically what the article says is that even though gas is only 12% of the power that we need, because of these increases in gas prices, it's having an an outsized effect on the wholesale price. If we were only paying high price for the gas we were actually using, it mm. wouldn't be so bad. But as the price setters, it just totally contaminates the whole market and that's why we're screwed. And, of course, gas is high on the eastern seaboard because it's exported with no requirement to keep some gas for local consumption and so the international gas price is what we pay Whereas in Western Australia, Joe, the state government forced the gas uh, producers to keep 15% or a certain amount in the state that they could not sell overseas and uh, they haven't had the price shocks that we've had on the eastern seaboard. Yep. There there you go. So... um, An argument for nationalisation of energy markets. Indeed, yeah. So, and we've mentioned the Yanis Furufakis article about that in the past. Well, in the chat room, you guys have been going off. You've been really good. Shame about the charts. I had a few more clips. I guess I'll use them next week. Some of that I can use next week. It'll be a slightly quicker one. And maybe we'll do a practice just to try and work out what's going on with this restream. You might see a practice run happen in the next few days as I just fire this up and test the system. we can point it at a dummy. Yeah, okay, we'll do that. Point it at a dummy. Scott Morrison somewhere. Mm-hmm. So we'll do that. Try and make sure that uh, it's sort of next time because it all seemed okay. Good on you in the chat room. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Scott, for trying to come on. We'll catch you next week, Scott. I'll talk to you. We'll try and sort things out in the meantime. Uh, bye for now, everybody. Talk to you next week. Here's all. On on the right, they are treating what should be a question of physics and science and economics and engineering as though it were an issue of religion and belief, and it's nuts. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and 
subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.